This program is made possible by the members and donors to the show. For details, visit the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from The Rachel Maddow Show, Counterspin, The Young Turks, The Progressive, MarkFiore.com, and Common Sense with Dan Carlin. And then at the end, we ponder the fate of the human race. Do you remember the color-coded alert system we used to have? Remember that? Uh, Tom Ridge announced the existence of our national color-coded Be Afraid alert chart uh, about a decade ago, in March 2002. So we could tell at a glance how alert we were supposed to feel. And if you didn't feel like glancing at the Be Alert chart, uh, at least at the airport, they would read periodic recorded statements over the intercom telling you out loud that today's threat level was orange. The threat level was always orange at the airport, no matter what else was going on in the rest of the country. We don't um, do that anymore. We don't do that. We, we got rid of the color-coded chart thing last year, and nobody complained. We also no longer have this. This is the Google Street View of one of the secret prisons we used to have in Romania. The Associated Press did a little overhead satellite view of it, too, so you can see... Um, just how snugged up our secret prison was against the railway lines in a really densely populated part of Bucharest. But yeah, that little thing there, that was ours. We are a country with two million people in prison or jail on any given day. America has thousands of prisons and jails right here at home, but we decided to open up a little something in Romania, too in secret. Also in Poland and in a bunch of other places, we had secret overseas prisons. We don't do that anymore either. They said they emptied them out in 2006, and then in 2009, it became official policy that we do not do that anymore. For years, do you remember that there was a ban on taking photos at Dover? A ban on taking photos of flag-draped coffins of Americans killed in war, having their bodies bodies brought back home to the United States. We, the public, were banned from seeing those pictures for years. But that ban is over now. We do not have that ban anymore. We don't do that anymore. We are now allowed to see. For a while, top-level U.S. policymakers approved torturing people. And Americans did torture people based on cockamamie policy advice that it was legal for them to do so. But the current president, President Obama, put a stop to that right when he took office. We do not do that anymore. Some things we stopped doing. Some things that we were told, yeah, maybe this is unprecedented, maybe this doesn't really seem like the kind of thing America does, but we have to do it. Some of those things from the past decade, where it was really hard to get our heads around the fact that we were doing those things. Some of those things are things that we have stopped doing. That said, some of the things we still are doing are still pretty hard to get your head around. We are still fighting the longest war in U.S. history, and it apparently still has two-plus years on the clock, unless the president speeds up his withdrawal plan. It's the longest war in U.S. history, and for most of that war, we were fighting it at the same time as another one of the longest wars in U.S. history. If you had told anybody in advance of that plan that that's how our country would spend the first decade-plus of the 21st century, you would have been laughed at. Before we started doing it, you probably also could not have convinced anyone that after we closed all our secret prisons in places like Romania and Poland, we would still keep one offshore prison in a nearby communist country which doesn't want us there. In advance of us starting to do this stuff, how would you have convinced somebody? 
How would you have convinced somebody that we were going to do these things? How would you have convinced somebody that the United States would consider it legal to find a wanted American citizen living abroad, track him down in that other country, and then for the U.S. government to kill him with a missile in that other country? The man's father went to court in advance of our government doing that to try to stop the U.S. government from doing it. The father sued to say in advance that his son should be arrested instead of killed on the spot if he was found, but he was found and he was just killed on the spot with a missile, U.S. citizen. Then a month later, we killed his 16-year-old son, too, also an American citizen, same cause of death. We have done things in the past decade or so that if you asked anybody in advance of us starting to behave this way, whether the United States of America would ever be a country that behaved this way, there's no way you could have convinced anyone. We granted ourselves permission to act this way when we said our response to being the victim of a massive terrorist attack in 2001 was going to be that we were going to declare that we were at war. Congress passed an authorization of military force against the group that attacked us and associated forces. And the power granted by that authorization to use force undergirds a lot of the things that we have done over the past decade in this administration and in the previous one. Things that constitute previously unimaginable behavior for the United States of America. We're on a war footing. And is that war footing forever? That's the question, right? When does it end? It's not a philosophical question. It is an empirical question. Because this is not a war that we ever planned on winning. We planned on just fighting it for a while and then eventually stopping, maybe. And I'm not just saying that because that's my take on it and I'm a commie pinko liberal, although I am. I'm saying that because it's been the understanding all along from the people who declared this war in the first place that this was never something that we were going to know it was over because we'd had a winner. It was never planned that way. You said to me a second ago one of the things you'll lay out in your vision for the next four years is how to go about winning the war on terror. That phrase strikes me a little bit. Do you really think we can win this war of ter on terror, for, for example, in the next four years? I have never said we can win it in four years. No, I'm just saying, can we win it? Do you see that? I, I, don't, I don't think you can win it. Your daughters are how old now? 22. 22 years old. They're, they're approaching the age, President Bush, they're going to have their own children. And when their kids are teenagers, are they going to, those kids, your grandchildren, be reading about Al-Qaeda in the newspaper every day? You know, I think if I know if we're steadfast, strong, and resolute, and I, I say those words very seriously, it's less likely that your kids are going to live under the threat of Al Qaeda for a long period of time. I can't tell you. I don't have a you know a definite end. A definite end. I don't think you can win it. Our country has used the idea that we are at war, not just in Iraq, not just in Afghanistan, but all over the globe. We've used the idea that we are in this global war as the justification for us doing all kinds of things, exerting all kinds of power that would otherwise be not just indefensible for a country with a constitution like ours, not just indefensible, but almost unimaginable. And this global war of ours, they said from the beginning, would not end because there was going to be a winner declared. There couldn't be. It is not that kind of war. So if that's the case, and being in a war footing is what justifies all this behavior that we wouldn't otherwise be participating in, when does this war end? When do we get to say that the global war that we declared more than 11 years ago is now over? Well, today, for the first time, a U.S. government official started talking about how this ends. Now that efforts by the U.S. military against al-Qaeda are in their 12th year, we must also ask ourselves, how will this conflict end?
This is the top lawyer at the Pentagon, the general counsel of the Defense Department, Jay Johnson, speaking today at Oxford University in Britain, broaching a subject that, as far as I know, nobody at a high level of government has been willing to officially broach since 9-11. How will this conflict end? It is an unconventional conflict against an unconventional enemy and will not end in conventional terms. We cannot and should not expect al-Qaeda and its associated forces to all surrender, all lay down their weapons in an open field, or to sign a, pre a peace treaty with us. They are terrorist organizations. Nor can we capture or kill every last terrorist who claims an affiliation with al-Qaeda. I can offer no prediction about when this conflict will end or whether we are, as Winston Churchill once described it, near the, quote, beginning of the end, end quote. I do believe that on the present course, there will come a tipping point, a tipping point at which so many of the leaders and operatives of al-Qaeda and its affiliates have been killed or captured, and the group is no longer able to attempt or launch a strategic attack against the United States such that al-Qaeda as we know it, the organization that our Congress authorized the military to pursue in 2001, has been effectively destroyed. We're approaching a tipping point. I just want to jump in here for a second to say that this, this part here, this is the, the unprecedented part. This is the part that we've been waiting for. Watch. At that point, we must be able to say to ourselves that our efforts should no longer be considered a, quote, armed conflict against al-Qaeda and its associated forces. Rather, a counterterrorism effort against individuals who are the scattered remnants of al-Qaeda or are parts of groups unaffiliated with al-Qaeda, for which the law enforcement and intelligent resources of our government are principally responsible. It will at some point stop being war and we'll go back to being police work and intelligence work against terrorism as a threat that we fight, but we do not say we are at war with it anymore. How much would it change us back as a country to hit that point? Can we go back? Have we irredeemably and irreversibly changed ourselves by being at war for 12 years now? And is this first word from the Obama administration on how we might do it enough to reasonably expect that we really are ever actually going to get there? War violates the natural order of things in which children bury their parents. In war, parents bury their children. In its twelfth year, we must not accept the current conflict and all that it entails as the, quote, new normal. When CNN's Aaron Burnett interviewed WikiLeaks' Julian Assange on November 28th, she was keen to press on what she deemed the hypocrisy of Assange as a champion of free speech, staying in the London Embassy of Ecuador, an unlikely champion, she said, of the right to speak. 
It's true Ecuador's record doesn't look great, though some regional experts suggest it's better understood as a political struggle between private media powers and popular governments who pursue policies they don't like, rather than a regime silencing its critics. But setting that aside, if press freedom is an abiding concern, it seems we'd hear more about Jordan, say, or Colombia, both of whom are ranked lower on the issue. Or, gee, how about the United States, with its own record of detaining, harassing, and yes, killing journalists? And setting even that aside, if you could, if anyone's going to lecture the guy who published reports of the U.S. military killing journalists in Iraq and saw his outlets funding essentially frozen due to U.S. government pressure about his commitment to freedom of information, it really shouldn't be CNN, whose news chief famously boasted in the run-up to the Iraq war that all of their on-air analysts came with Pentagon approval. And finally, a New York Times editorial addressed the Obama administration's drone assassination program on November 30th, calling for more accountability and insisting the government, quote, stay within formal guidelines based on the rule of law, close quote. That seems good, but the editor's account of how few innocents have been killed in the attacks raises questions. Quote, using drones, the Central Intelligence Agency has made 320 strikes in Pakistan since 2004, killing 2,560 or more people, including at least 139 civilians, according to the Long War Journal, a website that tracks counterterrorism operations, close quote. At least is right. The British Bureau of Investigative Journalism, for one, estimates the civilian death toll is at least four times greater. And other researchers have come up with similar numbers. The Times is aware of the Bureau's work, which it cited in February, although the paper allowed an anonymous U.S. official to smear the group as al-Qaeda sympathizers, because that's how balance works. And the Longmore Journal? The Times fails to tell readers it's a project of the neoconservative Foundation for Defense of Democracies, whose advisors include William Crystal, Charles Krauthammer, Joe Lieberman, and Iran-Contra conspirator Robert McFarlane. In the end, the editor's appeal for a clearer picture of the drone policy is undercut by the fact that the paper doesn't seem interested in providing one itself. Here at Best of the Left, supporting the good works of others is our entire reason for existence. Since the beginning of 2006, I've been making this show to highlight what I consider to be some of the best of the truly liberal media. Now I'm working on several ways to promote the best progressive activism around. Ruminate for a moment on whether you enjoy this show or consider its goals to be worthwhile, and if you do, please consider supporting this work by becoming a member for as little as $5 a month or even $55 a year at the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. It's the donations of members that allow the show to continue and continue to improve. Thanks so much for your support. In October, uh, there was a very tragic killing of three kids in Afghanistan. It was uh, NATO-led forces uh, that had bombed them. Um, Borjan was a kid that was 12 years old. Uh, Sardar Wali was 10. And Khan Bibi was just 8 years old. And so obviously this was tragic, and we have admitted that, in fact, yes, uh, we did do that. Major Admiral Wojak, spokesman for the forces, said 
ISAF, that's the International Forces, did conduct a precision airstrike on three insurgents in the Nawa district, and the strike killed all three insurgents. Now, notice they didn't say they were 8, 10, 12-year-old kids. They were insurgents. Now, the New York Times reports that that is not the case. In fact, they say, quote, the officials said, and they're quoting officials, they're not making this up, the officials said that the children were killed in a NATO strike on Sunday afternoon as they were gathering dung to burn as fuel, a common practice in the desert reaches of southern Afghanistan where there are few trees. You know what dung is, right? They're so desperate, they're digging up dung on the side of a road so they can go heat the house, use it as an energy source. And our military sees them, says, well, they're digging, maybe they're going to plant IEDs. Yeah, we recognize they're young, but we're going to kill them anyway. Now, you might say, hey, wait a minute, they're from up above, they might not have recognized that they were young. That's what I first thought. Then it turns out they have confirmed it. There's an article in the Military Times, Some Afghan Kids Aren't Bystanders. That's the title. And they say in there, A Marine official here raised questions about whether the children were innocent. And then, if that wasn't bad enough, Lieutenant Colonel Marion Ked Carrington said, It kind of opens our aperture, in addition to looking for military-age males, it's looking for children with potential hostile intent. So if you're trying to scoop up dung for your family and you're an eight-year-old kid in Afghanistan, we think you have potential hostile intent. And we feel apparently perfectly justified in killing you on the side of the road. Witnesses said that they saw their limbs in different parts. Obviously, there was a bomb dropped on them. Blood everywhere. Anybody got 8-year-old, a 10-year-old, 12-year-old? You have kids? And what do you think would happen if somebody did that to your kid and said, hey, you know, we're not even sorry about it. We thought that uh, now, from now on, your children are not necessarily innocent. They're potential hostile intent militants. You think you might want to fight those guys? Maybe for the rest of time? Gee, I wonder why we haven't made any allies in Afghanistan and why that war has not gone well for us over the last 10 years. But this kind of admissions, give them credit for being frank about it, but it is bone chilling. Is this what America has become? When we say, well, eight-year-old, who cares? We're going to kill him anyway, just in case. But remember, Joe Scarborough had this figured out, you know. It, it, it's, they don't hate us for that. Joe, why do they hate us? They hate us because they hate us. 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 We did not repeat any of that. He did a segment where he kept saying it over and over again. It's not that we killed their eight-year-old. No, they hate us because they hate us. Yeah, you nailed it, Joe. You really figured that one out. Sometimes I live under the moon. I thank God I'm breathing. And I pray, don't take me soon, because I am here for reasons. Sometimes in my tears I drown, but I never let it get me down. So when negativity surrounds, I know
I just read a great speech that May Reed McGuire, a Nobel Peace Prize winner, just gave in Afghanistan. She said the U.S. was doing more damage by being here and by using military force and that its drone warfare was actually a crime against humanity. She urged a ceasefire among all parties right away and said that nonviolence must be the path. While she was in Afghanistan, another Westerner was there, U.S. Defense Secretary Leon Panetta. And Panetta wasn't exactly taking McGuire's advice. In a troubling appearance with Karzai, Panetta vowed to keep some U.S. troops in Afghanistan well beyond the 2014 deadline that we've been led to believe would be the end of our involvement in that conflict. Not so, according to Panetta. We're going to maintain an enduring presence in Afghanistan beyond 2014, he said. We'll be drawing down our forces, he added, which is different, incidentally, than withdrawing all of them. What are they going to be doing there? Our troops will still be there, he said, to provide support, to provide training, to provide assistance, and to provide help on counterterrorism. That's not what May Reed McGuire believes is necessary, and it's not what President Obama has been selling to the American public, but it is in keeping with the U.S. empire, as Afghanistan will be another outpost in the East. I'm Matt Rothschild, and that's how I see it. Stay super late tonight Picking apples, making pie Put a little something in our lemonade And take it with us We're half awake in a fake empire We're half awake in a fake empire Tiptoe through our shiny city With our diamond slippers on Do our gay ballet announce Bluebirds on our shoulders We're half awake in a fake empire. Surprise! The Defense Secretary, Leon Panetta, is at the war. And it's always a surprise whenever a high-profile American official goes to the war. They never say they are on their way ahead of time. They never tell you until they're there, sometimes until after they've already been there and left, because they say it would not be safe otherwise. So it was supposed to be a surprise when we were told today that the defense secretary was in Afghanistan. Now, even though they said it is a surprise, it is not that much of a surprise in the larger sense, because it's December, and defense secretaries, and even sometimes presidents, tend to make their way to visit the troops in harm's way around Christmas time, just about every year. We can see the pattern because it's been 11 years in a row now that we have had troops in harm's way during the holidays as Americans have been fighting wars abroad for more than a decade now. Given that, it is a nice tradition, I think, that we send over some top-level civilians in December or any time, both to visit the troops, but also, importantly, to bring the national media with them, to bring national media attention to where they are going. It's a rather good use of a photo op and a publicity stunt to drag the press corps that typically only follows very high-level politicians, to drag the press corps into a war that they might otherwise not be talking about. And so... We see this happen every holiday season, and we get these images of the defense secretary today talking to the troops, and we get the national reporters there to cover this bigwig on his big trip, and we get those reporters exposed to the top U.S. military commanders in the war. So we get those top flight reporters explained, they get to have the war explained to them by the top tier commanders, explaining what's going on in the progress of the fight. That's how it goes roughly every December. This year, though, there was a slight change. 
This year, the top U.S. military commander in the war did brief Secretary Panetta on the war, and he was seen. You can see him on the video here. The press is shooting while visiting the war. But that top military commander is not himself speaking to the reporters this year. Because this top military commander is not in a position to be answering any unscripted questions from the press corps right about now. Not when his emails to a Tampa socialite are being scoured by a review board at home. And his next job at NATO is on hold during the investigation. General John Allen is still running the war in Afghanistan. But it, that's happening while he is still under investigation at home for those emails. After his name and his behavior came up during the previous commander of the war in Afghanistan's sex scandal, when he was forced to resign from his job heading up the CIA. And that has now squirreled its way into a maybe unrelated but concurrent scandal about why General Petraeus seems to have been secretly taping a conversation he held with a Fox News reporter last year. The reporter says she is not the one who taped it. It was not her tape. And so when that tape was leaked to the Washington Post, if it didn't come from the reporter, does that mean it came from General Petraeus? If so, why was he taping his conversations with reporters without them knowing it? And who leaked it and why? So that's still unresolved. And General Petraeus, of course, was the commander before General Allen. And, of course, the commander before General Petraeus, who had to resign in his own political scandal, he's now poised to release a new tell-all blockbuster book, which will, of course, open that whole scandal up again. So those are the last three top guys. In terms of the top-level leadership in the war in Afghanistan, it's kind of a freaking mess, right? And it has been a mess for a long time. The Pentagon just released its report that shows the results of President Obama's big surge of troops into Afghanistan after he took office. The report found that violence in Afghanistan after the surge is higher than it was before the surge. Enemy-initiated attacks are higher now than they were before the surge started, the surge that was supposed to decimate the enemy. One of the other main goals of the surge, which was to train up Afghan forces, that goal has been roughly one twenty-third successful. I mean that in the sense of a fraction. There are 23 Afghan army brigades, and of those, of those 23, one can operate independently without support of American or NATO forces. One of 23. And remember, the surge is done, and that's the result. More violence and one out of 23 brigades. And there are 66,000 Americans in Afghanistan right now. And American combat operations in Afghanistan are slated to continue there for another two years. But the whole basis of the plan to keep Americans in combat operations there for another two years was this idea that the surge was going to reduce violence and make it so the Afghan army could fight on its own. Well, guess what didn't happen? Either of those things. I don't mean to be a bummer, but it's true. At least the Pentagon says it's true. And it seems important. Not just for the military, not just for politics, but for us as a country. It's our war, right? Even the traveling press corps with Secretary, Secretary Panetta and even the people who can get stories into their papers and onto the wire services about what's going on in Afghanistan, even when we are talking about the war, which is rarely, what the press and the politicians who are talking about it seem mostly to be focused on is what happens after two years from now. What happens after the end of 2014? Are there going to be a thousand Americans who stay around in country after combat operations are over? Is it a thousand or six thousand or ten thousand? We're told that the president will make a decision soon, that he's reviewing options about the U.S. mission after 2014, about how many residual troops will stay after combat operations are over. But combat operations do not end for another two years. And here's one other thing to consider about this. Here are the, the troop levels, the number of American soldiers deployed in Afghanistan over the years. You can, the big hump there, you can see the Obama surge starting late in 2009 and ending just a few months ago. Now, side by side, next to it, 
over the same time period, these are the number of U.S. troops killed in Afghanistan in each of those years. See the pattern? I mean, look at those numbers on the same chart. The more troops you send to the war in Afghanistan, the more American troops die in the war in Afghanistan. Of the more than 2,000 American troops who have died in the war in Afghanistan, of the more than 2,000, more than 1,200 of those, more than half, have died since the start of the surge in 2010, in just the last few years of an 11-year-long war. And so as the White House decides what happens in these last two years that they have slated for continued combat operations in Afghanistan, there is this very pressing question. Not for what happens after 2014, but for what happens now. I mean, how big are you going to let that number get? Yes, we need to talk about what's going to happen after combat is over in 2014, but it's 2012. There's two years between now and then. What happens right now? What happens at the end of 2012? What happens in 2013? 2013 starts in two weeks. As an anti-consumerism advocate, I'd like to encourage you to shop less, don't buy things you don't need, and only buy the necessities from local, independently owned businesses. That said, if you don't take this good advice, then at least there's a way to shop that helps support this show at the same time. Simply click through to Amazon.com, just one of the major companies under constant boycott by one liberal cause or another, from the banner posted at bestoftheleft.com. Better yet, click through just once and bookmark that link to use every time you shop. Your shopping experience will be identical to normal. It will cost you nothing extra, but 7 to 8% of the cost of your order in soulless corporate blood money will be siphoned off and used to tremendously support the production of this show. Thanks for doing the right thing, whatever you consider that to be. In a land that is beautiful and rich beyond compare, one we rarely hear of as death hangs in the air. Take the killing in Iraq, Afghanistan, and Middle Eastern shores. Now double it, triple it, many times and more. You still won't come close to the five million perished. In Congo, as warlords, mind the stuff we cherish. With remnants of genocide festering still, Kabila or Intaganda, all sides like to kill. Now death marches again, after man, woman, and child. With soldiers and rebels using evil gone wild. The UN is there, with the biggest peacekeeping ever. But they emerge from their walls, really almost never. This is so complex and depressing, you say, but we all use a little piece of Congo each day. From a land far away, too many horrors to mention. The very least we could do is pay attention. Lest you thought, with the departure of Bush and Cheney, that Guantanamo would be closed by now and the kangaroo military tribunals called off, think again. 
The trial of Khalid Sheikh Mohammed and other 9-11 alleged conspirators is going on right now in Guantanamo. And the military judge down there just issued an outrageous order. Colonel James Pohl, and yeah, the judge is a colonel, said that any testimony from the defendants about their torture or mistreatment by the CIA and other U.S. interrogators would be censored. Let's be clear here. He didn't say that they couldn't testify about it, just that you and I couldn't hear about it. Without limitation, the observations and experiences of the accused, the judge colonel said, including descriptions of the so-called enhanced interrogation techniques, will not be available to the ears of the American public. To make sure, the judge imposed a 40-second delay on the audio feed of the proceedings. By depriving the American public of the knowledge of the torture our government agents committed in our name, the judge colonel is interfering with our democracy and shielding the torturers from public accountability. I'm Matt Rothschild, and that's how I see it. As if the war in Syria weren't horrible enough, a stream of recent coverage warned things could get worse. The Syrian government could be getting ready to use chemical weapons. It was, in certain respects, reminiscent of the last time an Arab dictator's weapons of mass destruction were treated as a looming threat. This time, like last time, anonymous U.S. officials are speaking to certain reporters, especially those at the New York Times, about satellite imagery that shows suspicious activity at certain Syrian military sites. That was in the New York Times on December 2nd. By December 4th, the Times was reporting Barack Obama's response to those anonymous claims, his warning to Syria not to cross that red line. To the Times, this was, quote, effectively confirming earlier reports of activity at chemical weapons sites. Close quote. That's a strange standard for confirmation, but the TV networks were going much further. Officials telling ABC News the U.S. is now seeing specific signs that the Syrian regime may be preparing to use the chemical sarin against opposition forces. That's what ABC Pentagon reporter Martha Raddatz told viewers. And from NBC's Pentagon correspondent Jim Miklashevsky, quote, U.S. officials tell us that the Syrian military is poised tonight to use chemical weapons against its own people, close quote. And on CBS Evening News, viewers were told this. This is a commercial satellite photo of a Syrian chemical weapons base. U.S. monitoring of roughly two dozen bases like this indicates the Assad regime has begun preparing its chemical weapons for use. Orders have been issued to bring together chemical ingredients which are normally stored separately for safety, but when combined, form the deadly nerve agent sarin. Of course, it is entirely possible that Syria could use chemical weapons. But when anonymous U.S. officials are making these kinds of claims, it should be a time for serious skepticism and scrutiny. It's not that there is no awareness of the lessons of Iraq. On NBC Nightly News, anchor Brian Williams reminded viewers that we've heard things like this before. Correspondent Andrea Mitchell agreed that there was what she called a credibility gap, but then explained that the intelligence this time was specific which is, well, what they said last time. And sure enough, some of the Iraq experts who got it wrong were back. 
NPR had hawkish former Iraq weapons inspector Charles Dwelfer on to talk about Syria and Iraq. He explained that this time the intelligence was definitely stronger. And on NBC's Meet the Press, moderator David Gregory's Syria WMD expert was Jeffrey Goldberg of The Atlantic. Viewers should have been told that Goldberg's experience in this matter comes from lengthy pieces in The New Yorker detailing Saddam Hussein's fearsome arsenal of WMDs and links to al-Qaeda. As you can see, Goldberg's awful track record hasn't hurt his credibility one bit. There was at least one bright spot. A skeptical take came from the McClatchy News Service. Reporters Matt Schofield and Hannah Alam talked to chemical weapons experts outside the U.S. government who believed the alarmist rhetoric about Syria was overstepping what could be known based on satellite images and the like. McClatchy is the company that bought the Knight Ritter chain in 2006, and Knight Ritter was one of the few outlets to question the Iraq WMD spin before that war. Obama announced today his first nominee to his second term cabinet. It has been 45 days now since the election. This is the president's first official nomination for his cabinet. Now, historically speaking, this is rather late. It's taken him longer than President Reagan after he was reelected, longer than President Bush after he was reelected, longer than President Clinton. But today, President Obama did it. He announced today that he wants Senator John Kerry to be his next Secretary of State to replace Hillary Clinton. One of the reasons we may have had this announcement today, as Andrea Mitchell pointed out today, is that the White House finally had the time to deal with this nomination only because Congress cleared the deck. When the Republicans in Congress all decided to give up and go home and, uh, go home and, and submarine their own speaker last night, that unexpectedly left some time for making announcements today. I'm very proud to announce my choice for America's next Secretary of State, John Kerry. He has earned the respect and trust of his Senate colleagues, Democrats and Republicans. I think it's fair to say that few individuals know as many presidents and prime ministers or grasp our foreign policies as firmly as John Kerry. And this makes him a perfect choice to guide American diplomacy in the years ahead. Now, Senate Republicans are not expected to oppose Senator Kerry's nomination. Republicans were the ones, in fact, who suggested that John Kerry be nominated in the first place, rather than U.N. Ambassador Susan Rice, who the Republicans did not want in the job, and who they pressured into removing her name from consideration for the job. The John Kerry as Secretary of State announcement now ends speculation on who will fill that one seat in the President's Cabinet. But, of course, it does set off immediately a new round of speculation about some other job questions, like, for example, who will become the Senator from Massachusetts to replace John Kerry? who gets it on an interim basis, and then who goes on to run in the special election for that seat to hold it on a long-term basis. Everybody in Massachusetts now is saying that Republican Scott Brown will run on his party's side in the special election, but the Democratic side is not yet clear. And then, the next White House personnel matter that rises immediately to the fore is, who's going to be the Secretary of Defense? The person whose name has been floated this week is Chuck Hagel. 
Republicans are trying to stop his potential nomination, too, even though Chuck Hagel himself is a former Republican senator. They think he's not right-wing enough. Chuck Hagel does not just have critics on the right, though. On the left, there is rumbling that Democratic presidents should stop putting Republicans in the defense secretary job, like Bill Clinton did with William Cohen and President Obama already did once with Bob Gates. Marcos Melitzas at Daily Coast calls it the bizarre tradition of sorts where Democratic presidents suddenly act like Republicans are right, that only they, Republicans, can run our national security affairs. So there is general criticism from the left that Democrats should stop bolstering the myth that Republicans are stronger on defense because they're Republicans, and therefore only Republicans should run defense even when a Democrat is president. But there is also this one very specific criticism of Chuck Hagel individually. It's not a general criticism, it's about his record. Back when it was Mr. Hagel who had the power to confirm presidential nominees or deny them, back when he was a United States senator, Mr. Hagel stood in opposition to President Clinton's nominee to be the ambassador to Luxembourg, a man named James Hormel. Senator Hagel explained at the time that he was opposed to that nomination because Mr. Hormel is gay. He said to his hometown paper that ambassadors, quote, are representing America. They are representing our lifestyle, our values, our standards. And I think it is an inhibiting factor to be gay, openly, aggressively gay, like Mr. Hormel, to do an effective job. Chuck Hagel said that in 1998. Uh, today he took it back releasing a statement to the Washington Post calling his own words back then insensitive, saying they did not reflect the totality of his views or his public record. He apologized to Mr. Hormel, and he apologized for saying it. He then said he supports, quote, open service, by which I think he means that he's not going to be a creep about don't ask, don't tell if he gets put in charge of the Pentagon, which has just gone through hell and high water to repeal the don't ask, don't tell policy. Thank you very much. We don't know if Chuck Hagel was sorry for his attack on Jim Hormel before that attack might have stopped him from getting the top job at the Pentagon. We don't know if that attack or anything else will stop him from getting the job. We don't even know if Chuck Hagel is the president's top choice to get nominated for that job. Seems like we only got the first nominee for President Obama's new cabinet today because of a meltdown in Congress last night. Let's hope that we don't have to wait for something quite that dramatic before we get the rest of his nominees, too. The mission of this show is to aggregate and amplify the best voices of the truly liberal media, and now you can play a critical role in helping fulfill that mission. I pick out the best clips I hear to share with you, and now you can do just the same thing extremely easily. Now available at bestoftheleft.com, each clip I play is made available individually with simple buttons that allow you to share your favorites on your networks through Facebook, Twitter, by email, and beyond. By myself, I can amplify this content to thousands of people, but collectively, we have the potential to reach millions. No kidding. Become your own media activist by taking one minute to share your favorite content a couple of days each week, help more people plug into the truly liberal media, and be an integral part of this extremely virtuous cycle. Thanks so much for your help. The Second World War did unusual things to the U.S. economy. You could compare it to giving it an injection of steroids or perhaps an injection of methamphetamine. Go look at the post-war. First of all, go look at the, the 1940 to 1945 U.S. economy and you see why the Great Depression ended. I mean, all of a sudden, you invest more than 100% of GDP into buying stuff and things go ballistic. 
then the Second World War ends, and every place that would be a foreign market that competed with us is either hurting or destroyed, so the U.S. makes up that gap. And so up until about the late 1960s, the United States was like an economy on steroids or meth. But of course, then it started to return back to normal levels, slowly, but by about the end of the 1970s, the effect had for the most part petered out. And you could see this in some of the things that President Jimmy Carter was starting to tell the American people. I'll never forget this because this is when I was first becoming aware of politics. Jimmy Carter was not a great president. Um, and as a matter of fact, he had all sorts of things like every president does that happened during his administration that not necessarily his fault, but how he dealt with them was not the best. The one thing that was interesting, looking back on it, because presidents haven't done this since, probably because of how Jimmy Carter fared because he did it, but Carter tried to level with the American people about the fact that things were changing. I'll never forget seeing him in presidential addresses to the nation in a sweater. And he had deliberately chosen to wear a sweater because he had turned down the heat in the White House so that he could set an example to Americans to turn the heat down in their homes to conserve energy because we had an energy crisis, among other things. Carter was pushing this idea that the country was in need of a new understanding of its situation. It was not anymore this super-dominant economy, but had major competitors, and that we had to get used to perhaps a new level of economic normalcy. Now, added to this fact, Carter had out-of-control inflation. It was something like 19% at the time. There was something called a misery index that had never scored worse than it had under the last years of Carter. And in addition to that, Jimmy Carter was openly calling uh, the American situation something that was in part based on the attitudes Americans had, and he said we were infected with a malaise. That's the way he put it openly. Now, when he ran against Ronald Reagan in 1980, Reagan contrasted this message that Carter was sending. Today we would say Carter was pushing kind of an austerity program where he was basically saying it's time to tighten our belt, put our nose to the grindstone, start saving energy, start, you know, rebalancing our economic portfolio and getting used to a new reality, perhaps a lower standard of living. We're not as rich as we used to be, right? And Reagan's message was to hell with that. We don't have to live like that. We're the indispensable nation. We're the shining city on a hill, all these kind of things. I mean, in the 1984 campaign, Reagan's whole campaign message was, it's morning in America, meaning the sun is coming up again because, you know, Reagan has brought back not just our attitude, the malaise was gone, replaced by patriotism and national pride, but also from a financial standpoint, we were standing tall, you know, investing, spending money, all these kind of things. But the reason why, and people forget this, but you just have to go look at a year-by-year -year debt breakdown to see the truth of the matter is. The truth of the matter is, is because Ronald Reagan decided to give us another shot of steroids or another shot of meth. Jimmy Carter's policy, if you want to use this analogy, was to let the World War II meth wear off and to get used to the new reality of not having the meth Ronald Reagan's idea was to hit us with another shot. The other shot was borrowing. Borrowing in the same way that people who decided during the housing bubble to refinance their home and take the equity and throw it into a you know richer lifestyle, or at least maintaining a lifestyle they probably couldn't afford, 
That's the same thing we did on a national level. Ronald Reagan exploded the debt. Exploded it in ways that it has never grown at any time in this country except in the Second World War. And obviously that was a short-term stimulus. But it was essentially the same thing. Hit us with money. Put the money into things like defense. The economic rationale for doing this was that eventually the prosperity would equal more tax payments into the Treasury, although he lowered tax rates too, and that that would end up paying for the borrowing. By the time Reagan leaves office, the debt has shot up. Now, his successor, who had been vice president under Reagan, continued these policies for a little bit. And then at the end of his term, the elder George Bush started to taper them off. Certain things were changing that allowed our government to do some different financial things. And the guy who was a real beneficiary of this was the next president, the Democrat Bill Clinton. The things that were happening at the end of the George Bush administration were twofold. One, the economy was taking off due to factors that neither the elder George Bush nor Bill Clinton really can take credit for. We were starting to enter the tech revolution, what would become the Internet bubble and all that stuff. And money began increasingly uh, during the Bush administration at the end and more during the Clinton administration to pour into the tax coffers. All of a sudden, we were flush with tax money. Not just that, the Cold War ended. And for the first time since the middle 1940s, the United States was able to cut back a little bit on military spending. It was called the peace dividend, if you recall, and it didn't last very long. But while it did, it gave President Bush at the very end of his term and President Clinton for the majority of his term more financial flexibility in terms of the debt than any president had had in some time. Jimmy Carter didn't have the option of increasing you know, tax rolls. He was dealing with a nation who was finding all sorts of foreign competitors eating our lunch, right? Japan was just starting to take over the auto manufacturing, for example. And he was also dealing with, you know, a military budget that he couldn't cut because we were in the middle of a Cold War, right? At the end of Jimmy Carter's term, the Soviets invaded Afghanistan. I mean, the Cold War was heated at the time. By the time Bill Clinton's in office, he's able to take money from the increased Internet bubble tax money. He's able to take money from the peace dividend and actually pay down the debt. One of the few presidents who ever did that. Now, he acts like this is something he created. He was really the beneficiary of some fortunate trends. Now, he chose to spend the extra money to help take the debt down. Not much more of a symbolic effort than anything. But when you never take the debt down as a president, it's still notable. Now, the reason I bring that up is because we could learn a little bit from what made it possible for Bill Clinton to do that. You know, I'll often say on this program that one of the things we should seriously look at as unaffordable, given our current situation, is our military spending. Bill Clinton's use of this peace dividend shows what we might be able to do if we could free up some money that currently goes into the defense budget. Now, obviously, after Bill Clinton's term, you have George W. Bush. We get hit on 9-11. We go into Afghanistan, we go into Iraq, we then have this whole banking crisis and the initial TARP bailout, and then Obama inherits it and has more bailouts. And under the last two presidents, we've seen the debt skyrocket to unheard of levels. But those unheard of levels were levels that were set up by previous administrations, okay? Those previous administrations used borrowing to help maintain a national lifestyle that was probably 
out of proportion to what we could afford and expect, right? It wasn't prudent to maintain that lifestyle, but it was popular amongst politicians because if you had somebody running for office promising a more Jimmy Carter, tighten your belt austerity future against someone who was promising to keep the good times rolling, the American people voted for the latter. It's our fault in the end, folks, because nobody was going to vote for a guy who was calling for tough choices and it's time to put our nose to the grindstone, work more hours, pay more taxes, cut social programs. wasn't going to happen, ladies and gentlemen. That's called a loser proposition at the ballot box. And so now we find ourselves in a situation where our annual spending is almost 50% more than what we take in. Not just that, we're obviously in a bad economy now, which makes the situation look worse. Remember, the GDP is a little like the national you know, salary check. And if you compare that to the liabilities, it's one thing in good times. It's another thing when, you know, like right now, it's the equivalent of having a lot less take-home pay, and yet the debt is bigger. So things are quite, quite serious, okay? This sort of Damocles that hangs over our head has to be dealt with. And I have precious little faith in our politicians to be able to make the level of changes they're going to have to make to do this. They're going to have to raise taxes, especially on rich people who've had, you know, let's be honest, ladies and gentlemen, the, the wealthy in this country um, under the Eisenhower administration had a 91% top tax rate. Nobody is seeking that again. But that's a perfect example of how high the tax rates have gotten in eras where you could never call a socialist, right? As a matter of fact, that was the height of the Red Scare, so it was the opposite of socialist, and we still thought a 91% tax rate on top tax earners was okay. Uh, Kennedy lowered that. Reagan lowered it again. Um, the people in this country who make the most money have been living in boom times in terms of taxes, we don't live in boom times anymore. We're all going to have to pay more. We're all going to have to work more. And we're all going to have to settle for a lower level of government services if you want to get a handle on this problem. Here's the problem with that. Our economy and our situation is brittle, right? You can't move too far in one direction without causing unintended consequences. For example, you raise taxes too much in a precarious recovery – I mean, people say we're in a recovery. It still looks more like a recession to me. And you could, once again, plunge the nation into recession. You have to be careful. You cut social programs or the safety net too much in an era where more people are hurting than at any time since the Great Depression, and you will end up simply making matters worse. I mean, you, you could make cuts in Medicare, like some people say, but if those people go right to emergency rooms instead with illnesses and problems that are much worse than had they been dealt with earlier in a preventative healthcare sort of sense, once again, you haven't done anything to fix the problem. You may have moved around, you know, who pays for what where. You might have transferred, for example, the way Republicans want to do uh, Medicare block grants. That's their answer to Medicare. And a block grant, of course, is where the federal government simply gives a lump sum to each state, and then those states can spend up to that lump sum but if their Medicare costs exceed that lump sum, then they have to make up the difference at the state level. That's not leadership. That's passing the buck to the states so that when people have problems or complain and the issue of people dying on the streets or dying because they didn't get their medical care comes up, the people at the state level get blamed for that instead of the Congress or the Senate or the president. That's just passing the buck. So the issue of dealing with this problem becomes more complex because if you deal too harshly in any of these areas, you will trigger all sorts of unintended side effects. So what do you do? Well, this is where my idea comes in 
about accepting the new reality. You know, I think it's very important that we understand that we're not the rich country we think we are anymore. And once you jettison that, you can start to lower your expectations and you can start to lower your responsibilities that cost money. If you went in with our country right now and said, create a budget that's balanced, that means raising taxes and that means eliminating programs and cutting here and cutting there, what do you think that would look like? If going off the fiscal cliff gives us a $560 billion cut, and that won't even do anything more than slow the rate of the deficit's growth, what would it take to get back on an even keel? Well, first of all, if you're not a rich country anymore, you can look at one thing that helped the Clinton administration quite a bit, a peace dividend. There are three areas, as we've told you before, that most of our money goes to. Four, if you want to count the deficit and the increasing amount of interest we pay on that every year. And that's military stuff, which includes not just the defense budget, but the veteran affairs budget, which used to all be part of the same budget in the old you know, 60s and 50s. We split that up because it started to make the defense budget look huge. But that's all part of the defense budget. We moved things like nuclear weapons into the energy department, another way to hide real military expenditures. Most of the intelligence budget is really part of defense. That's a huge piece of the pie. Do we need all that? Well, depending on who you believe, the United States spends as much as the next five easily countries in the world put together, maybe the next ten countries put together. Do we need to be spending that? Well, if you're a super rich person, you know, speaking of a nation, maybe you do. Maybe that's a luxury you can afford. Maybe that's the rich guy with his palace of a house, you know, when you just build the, you know, Cadillac security system and you have security guards everywhere to protect your interest. We're going to downsize that palace. And one of the things we need to take away, folks, is all that extra security. Maybe maybe we are overinsured when it comes to defense, right? Perhaps because that's not all about defense. If we scaled back on that, you might be able to have the situation that Bill Clinton found himself in with some extra money, money that could be put into, you know, paying down the debt, money that wouldn't come from tax increases. So people who are worried about higher taxes wouldn't have to get hit with that bill and money that wouldn't come out of the social safety net either. That's sort of the third option. And folks, we can take that money without it being too hurtful to the country because the country is not in danger. This is a terrible thing to have to say, folks, but the biggest danger we face is some terrorist bringing a nuke into a U.S. harbor or something. It's not that some country is going to come to our shores and invade us. Once we realize that, we realize we have a lot of money sitting on the table that's probably not being spent wisely at a time where we're in desperate need of money. Thanks for listening, everyone. So a couple episodes back, I asked for help tracking down information sort of related to the Fermi paradox, uh, adjacent to the Fermi paradox. And so that that is the one that says that although it is statistically likely that there are advanced civilizations elsewhere in the galaxy, and that it is also likely that they would uh, you know, advance themselves to the point of being able to spread out throughout the galaxy and would eventually come and meet us, 
that that hasn't happened and that seems strange. So the paradox is, you know, between why does it seem likely that it would happen and yet it hasn't. And so it turns out that what I was thinking of, you know, a lot of people responded, and thanks to everyone who did. Uh, one great listener, Allison, actually came up with the exact bit of information I was looking for, which was, where did I originally hear this? And it turns out it was from Dan Carlin's Common Sense podcast. By total coincidence, the same guy was who was in the last clip I played in today's show, same guy who uh, was talking about this back in uh, April of 2012. So I highly recommend you check out uh, th- that episode. It's uh, show number 224, and it's titled, As We've Told You Before, from Dan Carlin's Common Sense Podcast, back from uh, April 24th of 2012. And that is Dan giving his take on a philosopher, Nick Bostrom's take on the Fermi Paradox and his theory as to sort of why uh, it-, it seems likely for humans to sort of extinguish themselves within the next hundred years or so. But to get that information across to you, I'm going to play about six minutes of audio that that lays it out really uh, perfectly. This is from a physicist whose name I will not uh, mangle, but I'll post links to the video and everything in the show notes, and so you can find out all about them. So listen to this. It's not overtly political, but I'll come back at the end and make it political. I say, looking at the next 100 years, that there are two trends in the world today. The first trend is toward what we call a type one civilization, a planetary civilization, a civilization that uh, resembles something out of Buck Rogers or Flash Gordon. A type two civilization is stellar. They consume so much energy, they can play with stars. That's, for example, the Federation of Planets in Star Trek. Star Trek would represent a typical type two civilization. Then we have type three, which is galactic, like the Borg or Independence Day or the Empire of the Empire Strikes Back. That is a type three civilization, which is truly galactic. Now, by the time you reach type two, you are immortal. Nothing known to science can destroy a type two civilization. Comets, meteors, earthquakes, even a supernova a type 2 civilization would be able to survive even a supernova. The danger is the transition between type 0 and type 1. And that's where we are today. We are a type 0 civilization. We get our energy from dead plants, oil and coal. But if you get a calculator, you can calculate when we will attain type 1 status. The answer is, in about 100 years, we will become planetary will be able to harness all the energy output of the planet Earth. We'll play with the weather, earthquakes, volcanoes, anything planetary we will play with. The danger period is now, because we still have the savagery. We still have all the passions. We have all the sectarian uh, fundamentalist ideas circulating around, but we also have nuclear weapons. We have chemical, biological weapons capable of wiping out life on Earth. So I see two trends in the world today. The first trend is toward a multicultural, scientific, tolerant society. And everywhere I go, I see aspects of that birth. For example, what is the Internet? Many people have written about the Internet, billions and billions of words written about the Internet. But to me, as a physicist, the Internet is the beginning of a Type 1 telephone system, a planetary telephone system. 
So we're privileged to be alive to witness the birth of Type 1 technology, a planetary telephone system. What is English? English is the beginning of a Type 1 language. Everywhere I go around the Earth, people speak English because that's the lingua franca of science, technology, business. They all speak English. It is the number one second language on the planet Earth. And what is the European Union? The European Union is the beginning of a type one economy. And how come these European countries, which have slaughtered each other ever since the ice melted 10,000 years ago, how come they have banded together, put aside their differences to create the European Union? Well, to compete with us. And who are we? We are NAFTA. So we're beginning to see the beginning of a type one economy as well. Then we're beginning to see the beginning of a type one culture. Everywhere I go, you turn on the radio, and what do you hear? Rock and roll. You hear rap music. You hear youth music. Youth music is now planetary, knows no boundaries around the planet Earth. Everywhere I go, I see high fashion. Chanel, Gucci bags. We're producing the birth of a planetary fashion. Also sports. Take a look at the Olympics. Take a look at soccer. We're seeing the beginning of a tribal initiation rite called sports being turned into a planetary initiation rite that unifies the entire planet. So whenever I open the newspaper, every headline I see in the newspaper points to the birth pangs of a type 1 civilization in formation. However, every time I open the newspaper, I also see the opposite trend as well. What is terrorism? Terrorism, in some sense, is a reaction against the creation of a Type 1 civilization. Now, most terrorists cannot articulate this. They don't even know what the hell I'm talking about. But what they're reacting to is not modernism. What they're reacting to is the fact that we're headed toward a multicultural, tolerant, scientific society. And that's what they don't want. They don't want science. They want a theocracy. They don't want multiculturalism. They want monoculturalism. So, <coughs> so instinctively, they don't like the, the march toward a type 1 civilization. Now, which tendency will win? I don't know. But I hope that we emerge as a type 1 civilization. Now, in outer space, we look for signs for, of intelligent life in outer space. So far, we find none. Civilizations like type 1 should be commonplace in the galaxy. Some people assume, therefore, that type 0 civilizations are rather common. But only a few of them make it to type 1. Because that society, for the first time in its history, has the ability to commit planetary suicide. So maybe that's the reason why we don't see aliens in outer space. Maybe they never made it. Maybe one day when we have starships and visit them, we'll see atmospheres that are irradiated because they had a nuclear war. Atmospheres too hot to sustain life because they had a runaway greenhouse effect. Maybe when we go in outer space, we'll see the corpses of type 1 civilizations that never quite made it. Who knows? So there you go. That's interesting enough on its own, I think. But, uh, you know, of course, if you look at any issue from the right angle, you can make it political because everything is at its absolute core political in one way or another. And so, of course, you know, I'll take it the route of climate change because that's my sort of specialty. And 
you know, I used to work for a nonprofit that fought climate change for its sole purpose, you know, and every once in a while we would be asked as, as staff members of a group like that, you know, why do you fight climate change? Why have you chosen to spend your time fighting climate change? And almost everyone on staff said that, you know, they were doing it to save island nations from, uh, you know, going under to, you know, save, you know, impoverished people in Africa from going through horrible droughts that make their lives worse. And, and those are things to, to really avoid the negative impacts of climate change. And I wholeheartedly appreciate that perspective. You know, I, I love that they had that perspective. And for whatever reason, though, I just didn't have the same perspective. I, I empathize with it. I, I feel the same way, but that, that wasn't my driving force. For some reason, my driving force was rather than to avoid the negatives, I wanted to strive for the positives. I wanted to help create a Jetsons-like future or a Star Trek-like future. Just for wh whatever reason, that, that had a stronger pull for me. And I really never thought about it much beyond that sort of sense of, uh, you know, as described in, in that video, uh, working towards a type one society, a, you know, planetary, uh, multicultural, cooperative society. That's, that's about as far as I ever thought. But to think of that as a stepping stone towards the immortality of the species puts it in a whole new light. So I, I just thought that was really interesting. And of course, on that note, I really do have to uh, mention again that as I am probably going to do every year in one way or another, I am trying to raise money for the climate change organization that I used to work for. Uh, you know, they've been praised by Bill McKibben, the you know founder of 350.org and like the godfather of the climate change movement. You know, he refers to the Chesapeake Climate Action Network, who I'm raising money for, as the most effective regional climate change organization he's ever come across. And, you know, and believe me, that is in no part due to the work I did there, but you know, it's the, the people who run it and, and the passion they have and, and their, their location uh, right by Washington, D.C., that they can be there for local as well as national uh, political events. You know, it's, it's a really important organization. And so as they do every year, they're holding a polar bear plunge in, at the end of January. And they encourage foolish people like me to jump into freezing cold water in the middle of January and uh, ask good-hearted people to donate on my behalf to this organization as a thanks for me sort of uh, torturing myself. You know, as much as I hate cold water, I do it to raise money for them because I think it's important. So if you're interested in donating to that, uh, the link you can go to is uh, bit.ly slash plunge. So it's a bit.ly link, bit.ly slash plunge, J-A-Y-S, uh, all lowercase, all one word. And of course, I want to thank everyone in advance who even considers donating to something like that. It is really appreciated. Of course, that link is in the show notes. It's on the website. It's easy to get to. And every little bit really does count. Uh, I'm about $750 towards my goal of 2000 And I have just a couple more weeks to raise that money before the big plunge. So if you're interested in helping, please don't delay. And of course, you'll be hearing more about it uh, between now and the plunge. So that's it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to everyone who supports this program directly by uh, becoming a member or making donations to this show, uh, just like the Chesapeake Climate Action Network. Of course, donations to this show is how it survives as well. 
Of course, everyone can support this show just by telling everyone you know about it and by spreading the word of individual clips you particularly like through your social networks. All that can be done at the website. And stay tuned into the show between episodes by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter and find links to all the sources and music used in this and every episode. All that information is also posted in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from inside the Beltway yet outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, coming to you every third day thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. Bye-bye, it's now